0: Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i Faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Mary Ann Graham. At a very early age, Mary Ann was drawn to the church community, even though her parents were not. In high school, she became a Southern Baptist. She ran into the Baha'i Faith in her 20s. She tells the story of how she was able to transcend her fundamentalist Christian beliefs to become a Baha'i. I I started the interview by asking Marianne where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there.
1: I was an army brat, so I lived in many, many places. I was born in Germany, in Mainz, which is about an hour from Frankfurt. From then on, lived about every two or three years in a different place, in Texas, California, Maryland, and then a few times back and forth to Germany. The life of a person who constantly moved is, of course, hectic. It either forces you to be a very shy person or it teaches you really great life skills that I've used forever. So I feel at the time maybe I wasn't grateful for it, but you know, and later in my life I became grateful for the fact that it made me a very flexible human being.
0: And what was religious life like growing up?
1: My religious life was interesting. My parents were not really at all interested in religion, except that my mother, according to her beliefs, when I was about 10 days old, had me sprinkled, baptized. They really had no interest in attending church, but my mother said that from the time I was born... I was always marching to the beat of a different drum. So wherever we went, wherever we were stationed, I always hooked up with somebody who was willing to take me to church with them. And it didn't matter if it was Presbyterians, Baptists, whatever. I just went and I was happy to go. And that's where I always felt, honestly, most at home was in a church. (laughs) So and that was until, I guess I was about 12, that I moved around church. And then we ended up being stationed in Maryland, and actually stayed in one place for six years. And I actually um, became a Southern Baptist.
0: So, how young were you when you started being drawn to going to a church?
1: My mom said it started when I was about three that I started asking to go to church.
0: Three years old, and
1: because they had no real interest, I started asking our neighbors. To take me. And so, you know, just whenever we would move, I would find somebody that would take me with them, some kind soul. <laughs> <laughs> and many times it was also, it ha- would happen to be somebody um, maybe a, who, who was a neighbor and also a classmate. And I would ask them once I got to know them, hey, do you think your mom and dad would mind if I went to church with you? So it was kind of a natural thing.
0: So you have no idea what initiated this... Connection with church and the feeling of home?
1: I will tell you, sort of in a general way, growing up there was a lot of alcohol in the home mm-hmm. and a lot of abuse. Okay. And I think that part, you know, and that started very early on. And I just think that that was not only a religious thing for me, I think it was a safe place.
2: That to makes just, sense. You
1: know, be honest. I don't know if it was that that initially prompted it or what, but my mom, you know, she said even when I was really little, I was always asking about God and, you know, I was always attracted to church buildings and things like that. It wasn't necessarily just Christianity, but any building that looked like it might be significant from a religious perspective.
0: And this continued on through high school?
1: Yes, well, it continued on my whole young life. And then, um, as I mentioned, when I was 12, my father was finally stationed in Maryland at, in Aberdeen Proving Ground, and that's where we ended up staying until I graduated from high school. Then I was it just happened that I met a person down the street who attended a Southern Baptist church, and it was a huge church about three thousand people were members and they had a lot of youth activities and that really drew me in to have all these opportunities to be in a choir and they had what I call religious girl scouts sort of program and you know, just a very welcoming, warm place. By then I knew I was my home life was different and I just needed I needed that environment. It was either that or things could have gone probably, you know, completely the opposite. So I always felt like that God really, for whatever reason, and I'll be honest and say I've never figured out why me or whatever, but um, I really felt like that church and God really saved my life.
0: So what happened after high school?
1: After high school, I stayed a member of that church until I was about 22 I started having some anxiety about the church. There was no racial diversity. I think I was just kind of growing up, and so I was starting to notice all these weird things. There was no racial diversity. There were just certain rules that just didn't make any sense to me. But I wasn't necessarily looking for anything. I was just starting to have this little seed of, hmm, you know, dissatisfaction or wondering But I cannot say I was overtly looking for anything else yet. And when I was about 22, I uh, met a young woman who lived down the street from me. She was having kind of a Tupperware party thing, and she knocked on my door one night to invite me, and we hit it off instantly, and it just so happened that she was a Baha'i. So this is in 1975, Oh, I guess I was 21. So this nice lady from down the street comes knocking at the door, to, just really to invite me to kind of a Tupperware party. It was something else, but I don't know what it was called. And we just hit it off immediately as friends, and we started hanging out. And you know, both newly newly married young women. And I will just say that anybody back then who knew me, you know, knew within a very short time that I was a Southern Baptist and what my beliefs were. I cannot tell you how long it took this woman who's still my best friend today to tell me she was a (laughs) Baha'i because she knew kind of what my reaction would be, and it was not favorable at first. And so finally, after a couple of months, she told me she was a Baha'i, and I, of course, back then it wasn't as well-known as it is now, and said, what the heck is that? She started telling me... some of the beliefs, especially what we in the Baha'i faith call progressive revelation.
0: Why don't you explain what that, that concept is?
1: Well, basically, progressive revelation stems from the idea that all of the prophets or messengers of God are divine, and that they're all basically one, and that they come based on a covenant that we have with God, that he made with us, that he would never leave us alone and would always send us guidance, that he sends us these prophets or messengers or what we in the Baha'i faith call manifestations from time to time to renew our covenant with him and basically to re-energize and revitalize the whole planet. And so in the Baha'i faith we call it progressive because it's happened over thousands of years and each one reveals more and more of God's wisdom, and it's more and more pertinent for the day, and the scope of the message becomes broader and broader. So, initially, the laws and the teachings maybe from Abraham were about the community, and then it expanded to a tribe, and then a nation, and now we believe that Baha'u'llah has come for the whole world. So, there's a progressive nature, and that's one of the progressive natures, but that's kind of the easiest one to explain. So. My friend tells me about that all the prophets are divine and they're all from God. And I looked at her, and I swear to you, you can call her and ask her, did Marianne really say this to you? But I did. I said, well, Judy, that's a very nice story, but you do know you are going to hell. <laughs> so, so she just looked at me and said, well, that's why I've kind of been holding back on telling you because I was afraid that's how you would react. I sat down that night, and I really thought about my friend and the life that she led, and I really admired her because I admired she had a lot of integrity. Nobody was a stranger. You know, she was, because we lived in the same little townhouse community, you know, I saw how she was with other people and just a really wonderful person and very open-minded, and I hadn't been around that a lot in my life. So I thought, yeah, there's got to be something to this because of how she lived her life. I started very, you could almost say, hesitantly and reluctantly looking into it. So I went to meetings that Baha'is have where we tell people about the Baha'i faith called fireside and other types of things that she would invite me to dinners and things like that and celebrations of various holy days that we have, and so I got an opportunity to meet other Baha'is. Then I had kind of a strange thing happen. I took a new job, and suddenly I had to work a lot of overtime. And so I couldn't go to church, but I could attend Baha'i things in the evening. And when I finally was able to go back to church, everything, I don't know, something had happened in me, some sort of, you could call it maybe a paradigm shift or something, and after that, I had a, you know, I was thinking about that again, and I thought, Wow, what's changed? Church hasn't changed. I've changed, and so I realized that over that time of being away from it, kind of was like a little oasis of really being able to immerse myself in the Baha'i faith, and that I really, without overtly realizing it, had come to accept it and had come to accept the lot. And so, you know, I met with my friend a couple of days later and I think really shocked her by telling her that I was a (laughs) Baha'i.
0: What time period are you talking about? First of all, the time period in which you knew your friend and she kept it from you that she was a Baha'i and then the time period it took from the time you heard about the Baha'i faith to the time that you became a Baha'i.
1: Well, I would say that I knew her for about six months before she told me she was a Baha'i. And then after that, you know, it took me a while to really feel comfortable looking into it uh, overtly, but I just would call her and ask questions, and it just sort of steamrolled after that, or snowballed maybe would be a better better way to say it. I would say from the time that I really started investigating it, which was, Maybe a month after she first told me, it was about a year later.
0: What time frame was it that you were working overtime and not attending your church? Well, it
1: was it, the overtime had to do with um, the tax season, so it was about four months.
0: And what was it that you didn't feel or feel when you came went back to the church?
1: Well, you know, it was really weird. I just felt like everything. Sounded very kind of shallow, in a sense. And, I, you know, I don't mean to have... I don't want to give any illusion of disrespecting Christianity because, of course, Baha'is revere Christ, and that's what Baha'u'llah says. If you say you believe in one and not another one, you don't believe in any of them because they're all one. And so... I don't want this to be taken as disrespect. It was just how it was sounding to me at the time. It just didn't feel right, and it didn't feel really like it answered the needs of the of this day. Like there was just something there that was missing, I guess is the best way to put it. And the other part was just the general tone. You know, in the Baha'i faith, we don't have clergy. I wasn't really happy any, anymore with the idea of somebody else standing there telling me, what I should believe and what I shouldn't believe when I had been around these wonderful people who encouraged me to practice independent investigation of truth and said, we don't want you to blindly imitate us. We want you to investigate this and see what you feel and if you think it's the truth. There was nobody forcing it down my throat, and I kind of felt that way when I went back to church, like it was being jammed down my throat. The other thing is sort of what I call the, at that time, the fear factor, no relation to the old television show. I didn't like the idea of, you know, that kind of terror element that exists in, in the Southern Baptist Church back then. I don't know if it still does. You know, kind of being scared into believing didn't make sense. You know, if you love God, you love God, and, and that's it. It shouldn't be this, not that you shouldn't respect And, of course, you know, we're told even in the Baha'i faith we should fear God on some level, but it's not the same thing. I don't know. Everything just hit me the wrong way that day when I went to church. I don't know. Just in that moment, something big shifted in my head, and I knew I was a Baha'i.
0: How hard was it for you to relinquish this fear that you would go to hell by...
1: (laughs) Well... I have to be honest and tell you that when I decided to become a Baha'i, there is a process. There's first, of course, the internal process of accepting Baha'u'llah in your heart. And then there is a, for, you know, because we live in a physical world, there is, you know, administration and things like that. And so there is a process by which we sign an enrollment card to become part of your local Baha'i community, by which, of course, you know, if you want to say I am a fill-in-the-blank and you want to be part of your local community and your national and international community, but I will tell you the night that I met with a couple of the Baha'is and told them that I was ready, I was terrified. I mean, it's, it's difficult to really grasp, I think, for Baha'is how terrifying it can be, especially for people who come from a fundamentalist background, to really get past, to push past that because in your mind all you're hearing is I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And then you just have to remember that if you make that decision you're not giving up anything. In fact, you're saying I accept all of them including Bahá'u'lláh. And I just decided that night that since I had been a Christian Christ knew my heart, God knew my heart And if I was making a mistake or anything like that, that it would all become clear to me. And I've never looked back since.
0: And did it become clear for you?
1: It became very clear. (laughs) Yes, I'm a very, very happy, uh, very busy Baha'i.
0: So let me ask you this, Marianne. How did you reconcile the scripture of I am the way, the truth, and the light? and no one can mm-hmm. come through the Father except through me. How does? How did you reconcile that?
1: Hmm. Well, for me, I reconciled it by realizing that once you, and of course, honestly at that time, except for Judaism and Christianity and, and then the Baha'i faith, I really hadn't been exposed to uh, many of the other religions. But over time by reading some of the scriptures and the writings of the other religions and also reading the writings of the Halaláh, and especially there's uh, the Kitabi Egon, which is the Book of Certitude. You know, I came to realize that when, when Jesus is saying I, you know, it's the I of in the station of the messenger and that they're all the way, the truth, and the life. And so it became a broader thing for me than to just say it was just Jesus. But they all, when they came, they were the messenger of God for that time. And today, the Huala is the way, the truth, and the life for people living on the planet right now.
0: How did the Baha'i faith change the direction of your life?
1: You know, there's so many things about it. Of course, obviously, I had a lot of studying to do I had to learn a lot, read a lot, attended a lot of different types of meetings to increase my knowledge about the Baha'i faith, and of course, started buying books like crazy. I would say that initially, how it changed my life was that my life was be- became more focused on service to humanity, and I was made much more aware of the plight of humanity in terms of you know its condition right now and. Even back then, it wasn't as, in my perspective, it wasn't as bad as it is now, but, you know, just things, I don't know how to explain it, except that I became more aware of the world at large, and it really expanded my my vision, I guess you could say, and so that was one thing that I noticed. The other thing that I loved is that when you're a Baha'i, you don't have to limit what you're exposed to in terms of the other religions, so I, I... embarked on this sort of journey of reading about the other religions, which was really great, and also um, did a lot of Native American studies. And so that was really a gift because I grew up in a very sheltered, you know, when you have a violent alcoholic upbringing, part of the truth of that life is, you know, you live a life of little exposure, very sheltered, and so you you don't learn a lot that was a big gift, and then eventually I met my husband, so that was nice, and he's a Baha'i. The other thing that it led me to that was, a, I would say, one of the most significant things is that I, um, we decided to live in China for a while, where we both taught English at a university and, you know, introduced people to the Baha'i faith and had a lot of I don't know, really amazing opportunities to tell a lot of people about it, which people don't normally get there. I mean, of course, it's influenced every aspect of my life. Uh, One real gift that it gave me, that in the faith we're taught that your parents are your parents forever and you have to respect them. And, you know, growing up with that kind of a childhood, when I was an adult myself, my parents and I were not very close because of the baha'i faith it really was so impressed on me from the writings that i had to somehow get past the feelings that i had and it you know i was able to get to a point where i have now a really good relationship with my parents which most counselors find unbelievable
0: what's interesting is that even though you might have lived in a very awful Environment growing up,-, mm-hmm. your parents didn't keep you from experiencing church, right. they basically allowed you to take your spiritual journey,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is yeah. you know a, a gift, gift. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah that was definitely a gift from God, I'll tell you mm-hmm. yeah, I will say i got I would get in trouble if I came home late from church, probably one of the few people on the planet that did so. <laughs> But at least they let me go. You know, my mother wasn't, thr- well, neither one of them were really thrilled about it. I think they did feel a little bit intimidated by it all. But, you know, eventually it was okay. And actually, my mother is a behind now.
0: So how did that happen?
1: Oh, gee. <laughs> I was totally shocked. Let's see. Well, first I have to say that, as I mentioned earlier on in the conversation, my mother had me, according to her, Beliefs, whatever that meant at the time when I was a, a baby, you know, she had me baptized in the church, and that was the extent of any going to church that I ever remember. So when I wanted to become a Southern Baptist, in order to do so, you must be dunked. Believe it or not, from a totally non-interested in a religious person in religion person, she was very upset that I was going to be baptized again. And it was practically World War III in our household. But I did it, and, you know, nobody came there to watch me be baptized or anything. So there was just sort of a, a truce in the household after that. So when I came in years later talking about the Baha'i faith, she said, okay, that's it, I wash my hands of you. <laughs> so about fast forward now, let's see, I became a Baha'i in 19... 19- 77, and fast forward about almost 20 years. By then, of course, we had reconciled our differences as far as a lot of things, and you know, we're getting along okay. So she came out to visit my husband and I, where we were living in um, Manhattan Beach, California in L.A. County. You know, my mother was the victim of a lot of the violence, and so, you know, she responded immediately to all of the Baha'is just being so wonderful there. And, you know, she met a lot of them. It just happened that there were a lot of activities the couple of weeks that she was there. And the night or two before she went back to Maryland, there happened to be a fireside, which, as I mentioned, is a informal gathering where Baha'is will invite their friends and family to learn about the Baha'i faith. I have, no, I have no memory whatsoever of what was said or what was done, except that at the end, my mother, when they said, do you have any questions, she raised her hand and said, yes. How do I become part of this? <laughs> Whereupon her daughter almost passed out. You know, being the good daughter that I was, I sat her down and I said, are you sure? <laughs> and she said, yes, I want to be part of this. So that was about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. She's very much in an advanced age now. She's 80 and doesn't, she's not very active or anything, but at least she believes, so.
0: Now, you said you were in China. Yes. How receptive is the Chinese government to the Baha'is there?
1: A lot of it depends on where you are. You know, going to a place like China would be like coming, somebody coming to the United States, except in terms of size, But here things are a little bit more homogenous. There, um, it really depends a lot on the province and sometimes the the city or town where you're living. Now, we were living in Henan province, which is in central China. And Henan province, unbeknownst to us, before we actually went there, is a very, very conservative province. Part of it is because it's the birthplace of the Gong. Basically, the, the Baha'is have a special training that they go through um, to learn about how to be a Baha'i in China. And we have a law in the Baha'i faith that we are to be obedient to the laws of the country in which we reside. And so, you know, we were very respectful of that, and there never is in the Baha'i faith any form of proselytizing. But because we were foreigners and because we were teachers, We were asked many times what was our religion and, you know, just basically what did we believe in and things like that. You know, if the government asks you any questions, you just openly, you're very transparent and you tell them that you're a Baha'i. And so right now the Baha'i faith is not recognized in China, but uh, there is a lot more freedom there for the Baha'is. In some of the major cities, foreign Baha'is are allowed to congregate and things like that. But basically we go there on sort of a general just to tell people about it if they ask, that kind of thing.
0: So if a Chinese person wants to become a Baha'i, can they?
1: (laughs) Um, At the present time, because it's not recognized there, there's absolutely no Baha'i administration or any of the administrative bodies that we have in the Baha'i faith. So basically if somebody wants to become a Baha'i, they do so as a just a declaration orally. And they just say, you know, I'm a Baha'i, and they believe it in their heart. And, and you know, if they want a little bit of uh, Baha'i education, we do have a lovely set of seven, well, actually in China, eight books that we can study with them. And it's done very informally and at pace, whatever pace they wish to take. We can share a few books with them, and uh, some more and more are being published in Chinese, and Mandarin, but you know, it's a process. There is a chair of Baha'i Studies at Beijing University, and of course, they do know all about it. That's absolutely clear. They know there are Baha'is, but at the present moment, it's still not an um, openly recognized religion there.
0: So how long were you in China?
1: Altogether, we were there just a little over a year. We You kind of go semester by semester, and um, I guess it was maybe 14 months, something like that.
0: What did you do when you got back?
1: When we got back, we uh, we moved to Seattle, my husband and I, and then now we're living in um, Grants Pass, Oregon, southern Oregon, and waiting to see what happens next. Of course, in between China and becoming a Baha'i, I I lived in a lot of different places.
0: So how long were you a Baha'i when you ended up going to China?
1: Gosh, about 25 years. And I had also done some moving before that within the United States specific to the Baha'i faith. And in a community where there are nine or more Baha'is, we gather once a year in April and elect a local administrative body called the Local Spiritual Assembly. Occasionally, due to relocation because of jobs and health and things like that, if it's a community where there aren't many Baháís, if you if you go below that number nine, you know that we call it that our assembly is jeopardized because we don't have enough people to reelect the assembly. And so there have been many times that we would move to help keep an assembly going for a while.
0: What moved you to go to China?
1: In the Baháí Faith, there, we have a really um, unique blessing really from God that we have a covenant with Bahá'u'lláh, who's the, um, the messenger for this day, the founder of the Baha'i faith. When he passed away um, in his will and testament, he designated his son, Abdu'l-Baha, to carry on the work of the faith and to be the, what's called the center of the covenant. And Abdu'l-Bahá, like his father, revealed many, many, many tablets, wrote prayers and uh, letters to people. I mean, was very, very prolific in his writing. And one of the places that he specifically mentions is China. And um, it happened that for a couple of years, I held a position of um, just basically providing information to Baha'is who would like to travel to other countries. We don't really have missionaries the way they do in the Christian religion, but we have people called pioneers that are willing to travel and um, at their own expense live in other countries to share information about the Baha'i faith, and we're actually become part of the local community and learn the language and things like that. And so just over time, by being in that position myself, it was really became clear that we really, that that call, I don't know, that attraction to go pioneering filled my heart and my husband's, and when we studied and talked about, gee, where would we go if we could, it was just clear to us that China was the place, because we had always had an interest in all things Asian, and my husband, before he became a Baha'i, had been a Taoist for 15 years, so he knew some Chinese already knew a lot about their history, their culture, and it was kind of a natural fit for us to go there, I guess you could say. So that's how we chose it.
0: And how long have you been back?
1: see. This December it will be three years.
0: Is there something you'd like to do in the future that, that you have a vision for?
1: Oh, absolutely! Right now, I, my husband, and I both are finishing. We have neither one of us had the opportunity to finish our bachelor's degrees. We both have a lot of, probably about two years under our belt. So we're on a sort of a mission to finish our bachelor's degrees. We have a, our own five-year plan to um, go pioneering again in five years or so, and um, hopefully to China. But we're trying to be reason for finishing our degrees is so that um, we're more marketable. And, you know, we'll try first in China and see what doors God opens for us. And if not there, then there's, there's plenty of other countries. And if not there, then we may apply to serve at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. We don't see ourselves being in the United States forever.
0: Well, Ann, thank you so much for telling your story.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Marianne Graham, a Baha'i from the West Coast who became a Baha'i from a fundamentalist Christian experience. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number one 800 unite. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: The wilderness wilderness and and the wasteland
3: shall be. shall blossom
2: abundantly. abundantly. And rejoice rejoice with with joy joy and singing. singing.
3: Then they shall see Prophet Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light. south, the east, gathered and the west—they'll be gathered around the throne. Oh, they'll see them march, they'll see them marching all together up the mountain,
2: the mountain,
3: on the king's, on highway. The king's highway to Zion. let <laughs> Beautiful in, that
2: beautiful in that
3: beautiful, beautiful, beautiful
2: Zion. Zion.
3: All praise. praise. Oh, we're going to give him praise, all praise.
4: Came Jesus to Jerusalem, riding on the shoulder of a dove. The dove upon his shoulder said he was the one, the one that teaches how to love. Mohammed stayed out in the desert sun, stayed out there just as long as he could. The Maker gave him water from the river of life. Gave nation nationhood And then time passed Soon the dark clouds Came and covered up Mohammed's son But the young Bob Down in Persian land Came to tell us all the promised one Lo, the nightingale Of paradise singeth upon The twigs of the tree of eternity With holy and sweet melody. to the sincere ones the glad tidings of the nearness of god
0: Thy name is my healing, O my God, and remembrance of Thee is my remedy. Nearness to Thee is my hope, and love for Thee is my companion. Thy mercy to me is my healing and my succor, in both this world and the world to come. Thou verily art the All-Bountiful, the All-Knowing, the All-Wise.